Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called The FSU Files, How to Fight Cancel Culture and Win. In the chair is Toby Young. Thank you all very much for coming to this um, uh, free speech union uh, event at the Battle, the Battle of Ideas. Um, the purpose of this event is to um, uh, talk to some of the people uh, that have um, been targeted for cancellation over the past uh, 18 months, few years, and find out how uh, they fought back, in some cases, with our help, and to try and draw some general conclusions from that about how we can all push back against cancel culture. Um, just briefly, before we get to that, and I want to try and give everyone five minutes to tell their story and then we'll throw it open to you and hopefully have about an hour uh, to answer your questions and discuss these issues together. Um, but just briefly, I and some other people set up the Free Speech Union last February. Um, the timing was um, uh, quite fortuitous um, because it was just before both the pandemic uh, uh, struck and the Black Lives Matter movement got an incredible turbo boost from the killing of George Floyd, and both of those uh, things seem to result in the acceleration of cancel culture and uh, made it much more difficult to dissent, at least from uh, those particular narratives. Um, uh, and we, went, we, we ended up helping uh, many more people than we originally anticipated. We grew quite quickly. We now have almost 9,000 members, uh, 12 full-time, em well, 12 employees, not all of them full-time. Uh, we get about 50 requests for help a week from people um, who've got into difficulty for exercising their lawful right to free speech. We try and help as many as we can. I've got um, uh, Fraser Hudgston, our case management director, down here, Bryn Harris, our um, uh, chief legal counsel, and uh, I want to bring them into the discussion a bit later, and hopefully they'll be able to answer some of your questions. Um, we don't just do casework, though that is, um, uh, takes up about half our time. We also organise events like this one. Uh, we've got a couple of events coming up at the Backyard Comedy Club in Bethnal Green. We're hoping to organise a debate, possibly here, uh, next January. Um, we've got an online speakeasy with um, Frank Ferradi. I'm interviewing him about his new book on October 25th. All of these are the benefits you'll get from joining the Free Speech Union. If, by some chance, you haven't already joined, uh, on your chairs there should be um, flyers which have two... QR codes on them. One, to donate. We do depend upon donations in order to keep membership dues as reasonable as possible. If you're a student, a veteran on benefits, it's only $24.95 a year and you can pay monthly. Uh, if you're not in any of those categories, it's only $49.95 a year. And if you do get into trouble and we do end up helping you, you get uh, much more than that back from us. Um, but the only way we can continue to subsidise membership dues like that is if we get donations. So if you haven't joined, please join. <coughs> QR code for that or donate QR code for that too. Anyway, on to the matter at hand. Um, on this panel today, um, uh, going from left to right, we have Nick Buckley, who I'm sure some of you will already know. He's already done a panel, uh, one panel here today already. Nick's going to tell us his story in a moment. He set up a charity in Manchester um, about 15 years ago, um, and um, uh, it's done amazing work uh, with young people, particularly homeless young people in Manchester. He's going to tell you about uh, his experience uh, just at the beginning of the kind of... Um, uh, BLM um, explosion um, last year. We've got Gillian Phillip, the author of over 40 books, um, and um, uh, she had um, a difficult experience 
last year when she came to the defense of J.K. Rowling. She'll tell her story in a minute. Lisa Keogh, who was until recently a student at Abate University, um, who fell foul of um, uh, what I'd be tempted to call the trans-Taliban, but I know that's a <laughs> politically incorrect phrase, sorry, shouldn't use, but she'll tell her story in a second. We've got Sam Bayliss here, who had the unusual experience of um, contributing something to a magazine at Edinburgh University that was set up precisely in order uh, to give students an opportunity to publish unorthodox dissenting points of view, but his point of view just, just, just turned out to be too unorthodox, uh, too challenging, and, 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 and um, uh, his piece for this new magazine was sent down the memory hole. He's going to talk to you about that. And finally, Harry Miller. Again, I'm sure many of you will be familiar with Harry. Um, uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino has this great phrase. He was once asked who he wanted to be in life, and he said, I want to be the wrong guy, as in the movie when people say you picked on the wrong guy. Well, when the police came for Harry <laughs> and accused him of committing a non-crime hate incident, they picked on the wrong guy, and he's going to tell you uh, about the fight back. So, Nick, I thought we'd start with you. Do you want to just, I think we've got about five minutes, just yep. tell us... Um, when what, you wrote a blog post, didn't you, for LinkedIn, yep. yes. um, in which you uh, made some perfectly reasonable dissenting points about BLM. Yeah, so it was June last year. Uh, we had protests in London uh, by BLM. I'd never really heard of them before. So I decided to have a look about what they were. So I went onto their website, not a conspiracy website, their own website, and had a read of what they were saying. And I was quite shocked. So I decided to write a 700-word blog put it on LinkedIn about what I discovered, but basically saying what they were saying and then finishing it with what I would do if I wanted to improve the lives of black people in the UK today. Um, it was on LinkedIn for a couple of weeks, fine. Some people agreed with it, some people didn't. Um, but then someone copied the link and put it on Twitter and then it went mental. Um, somebody set a petition up to have me fired from the charity I founded and I was chief exec of. Um, a volunteer resigned and used the word racist and Nazi in the email resignation and the board panicked. The board consisted of four people who I'd appointed, three of them were personal friends and within a couple of days they emailed me in one line saying you're fired immediately and that was the end of that. First week I was a beaten man, didn't know what had gone on, never thought I could get cancelled, never thought I would have been in trouble like that and after a couple of days I decided to take some advice, and it was my own advice that I'd given to tens of thousands of kids, and it was get up, brush yourself down, and fight back. So I joined the Free Speech Union, and then Toby phoned me up the next day, and it was the first time I managed to get anything off my chest, I felt better after that. Free Speech Union then got me a solicitor involved pro bono. At that point, I had a little bit of savings, but my... All I'm thinking is, I'm probably unemployable now. I'm, I'm Nick the Nazi. How, how, how am I going to get another job? So the money I've got put away, I'm going to need that to live on. So I can't afford to waste all that with solicitors, but luckily we got a solicitor from Keystone Law involved who are fantastic. They looked at my contract, they looked at what I'd vote, they looked at everything. And within a couple of hours, they said, clear cut, breach of contract. So we wrote to the board and we basically said to the board, Nick's coming after your houses. He's going to sue you all personally unless you resign. And within eight, this how much they stuck up for themselves. Within 18 hours of them getting a letter, they all resigned in disgrace. Yes. These people can be beaten, and they can be beaten very easily. 
all you have to do is stand up and you say, no. That's all you have to do. Some cases are easier one than others. I'm not saying it'll be as easy as mine. But you have to say and use the word, no, I'm not doing that. No, I'm not saying that. Because when you end up in a really dark place and you say to yourself, how did I get here? The answer is, you walk there backwards, one small step at a time, and you never said the word no. That's how you got there. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Gillian, um, uh, what happened to you? So I was employed as an author. I'm a children's author. I've written all my own books. But I was also employed by a company called Working Partners, uh, who are a kind of book packager. So they commission books. They get authors to write them. And I was taken on in about 2011 as one of the Erin Hunter team, which writes animal fantasy for middle grade kids. So um, I did that right up until last year, 2020. Um, I'd always had a social media presence. <laughs> um, I had always been quite open. I, was, I, was, I started giving my personal opinions about, I mean, certainly as early as 2014. Um, I was talking about the Scottish referendum and issues surrounding that. And I'd never shied back from um, talking about political issues or, or contentious issues. And no publisher had ever worried about it. My agent didn't worry about it. Um, it was all fine. Um, so I started posting on <laughs> transgender ideology and issues roughly about 2017, I'd say. Um, now, um, when I say that, I'm, I should add not transphobic, not anti-trans, just I have very strong concerns about self-ID. I've got nothing against trans people. So I was simply um, expressing my concerns about self-ID, should it really be possible for intact male bodies, complete with penises and beards, to be in women's refuges, women's jails, and so forth. So that was basically it. But this turned out to be the most contentious issue I had posted on. So um, about 2019, my agent finally said, maybe you shouldn't be you know, posting so much stuff about that. So I sort of said, okay, uh, anonymous account, so I said, right, I'm going to stick to professional stuff on my professional account, fine, and I'll have an anonymous account where I'll post my views. So fast forward um, to about to 2020, about May, and a friend of mine called Rachel Rooney, who is also a children's author, and she'd written this lovely picture book uh, called My Body Is Me, and it was kind of encouraging children to, to be happy in their bodies, to be proud of their bodies, she was absolutely dragged, um, not so much by people in social media as by actual fellow children's authors. A, a sort of nasty little clique of children's authors had it in for her, said the book was transphobic, uh, and basically tried to ruin her, and pretty much drove her out of children's writing. Now, at that point, I kind of outed my own anonymous account. I said, I, I really, I cannot stay silent on this. Um, this is my professional account, but if you want to read my opinions, go to my anonymous cat spraddled account. That's me. At which point, the managing editor of Working Partners followed me on that anonymous account. Never said a word. Wasn't fussed. Just the way nobody from the publishers or anyone had ever complained, you know. Um, never said, gotta stop that, gotta stop that. Um, so, 
um, about a month later, I think, I finally added the hashtag, I stand with JK Rowling, to my professional account. Um, she'd had so much abuse, she'd had death threats, she'd had rape threats, and again, I thought, I can't keep my mouth shut about this. But it was blood in the water, and about two weeks later, um, I woke up on the 25th of June, 2020, to a couple of critical comments, abusive comments on Twitter. Uh, I blocked them and moved on, but for 24 hours, it just kept coming, it snowballed. Uh, eventually, I was getting hundreds and thousands of abusive tweets, had to deactivate my account, and 24 hours after it began, I kind of, well, I woke up, I went to sleep at five, woke up at nine, uh, agent was on the phone, working partners was on the phone, I knew they wouldn't be pleased, but I thought they might be slightly sportive, but anyway, they said, well, we're going to have to see what HarperCollins say, because they were the publishers in the States who mostly published these Aaron Hunter books. Uh, HarperCollins got to the office at 9am New York time, 2pm UK time, and at 9.01 New York time, I was fired <laughs> by people who I knew personally, people I'd done a lot of work for, not all of it paid, uh, I used to tour for the brand, um, and yeah, I was out in my year. They didn't ask for my side of the story. They didn't, you know, they didn't come back to me to say, how are you feeling? They just fired me. So um, that's kind of how I got cancelled. But I think the thing about it was they kind of expected me, as Nick says, to just roll over and take it. And I think the way that you defeat it is not to, is to fight back. It's, it's to say, I'm not going to be quiet and be apologetic and roll into a corner and apologize for everything I've ever thought. You cannot do that because it's never enough. Um, so um, I too approached the Free Speech Union and um, they've been tremendously helpful to me. Um, and I've, I'm starting to retrain as an HGV driver. Um, <laughs> that was our suggestion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll never get you another That's job in publishing, so far. we said. Yeah. You'd have to retrain as a lorry driver. Uh, anyway, um, yeah. one, thing that, um, one thing that you both have in common, I think, is that you expected people you knew, colleagues, friends, to be much more supportive when the, kind of, when the axe fell. Um, but they weren't. Do you have a sort of explanation in your head, either of you, for, for why it is that people don't stand by you? Why do they retreat so quickly once because, the mob targets you? Because they're, they're terrified for their own. I mean, that is the point of the cancellation. It's not the person it's aimed at. It's everybody else who's going to be too scared mm. to say something. I think the um, word for me is cowardice. Yeah. And we've become, we've become I've said this in the last um, talk we did a few hours ago, we've become a nation of cowards. We're afraid of everything. And that's because our lives are so easy compared to what they used to be. And we don't know what hardship is anymore. And having someone on Twitter call your names and, you know, having a go at you is so terrifying now that we will allow our friends to be crucified as long as I don't get called any nasty names. It's cowardice. Yeah. Um, uh... So... Um... Nick is in the charitable sector, and Gillian was in publishing both um, uh, areas that have become um, completely infected by the kind of authoritarian Very woke captured. virus. Yeah. Very captured. 
Um, but universities uh, are probably at the absolute forefront of this um, battle. And I'd say a good third of the people that come to us for help um, are students. So it's really helpful to have Sam on this panel because Sam is currently a student at Edinburgh University. Uh, so Sam, tell us, tell us your story. So yeah, I went to <clears throat> the University of Edinburgh uh, blissfully ignorant that um, this wasn't going to be some space for, um, for the you know, expressing of open ideas. Um, anyway, I have always liked to, to write. So I joined the student newspaper um, and for a year and a half, I kept my head down on the sports desk. Um, you know, it was quite easy to um, not upset anyone there. And anyway, after a bit of time at the student newspaper, I discovered um, a different student publication called The Broad, who, as you may be able to guess by their name, um, they were set up, as Toby alluded to earlier, to combat censoriousness on uh, the University of Edinburgh's campus. So on their website, they make numerous claims, um, such as, I quote, free speech needs to be constantly pushed to its limits. And, quote, the right to, to be offensive is a key facet of freedom of speech. So I saw this and, you know, I, my ears were pricked up. Um, I started writing for them. I wrote an article for them in March 2020 um, called Should Wokeness Win? In which I um, was looking into the, um, the virtues of perhaps having a colorblind attitude towards um, society. Um, you know, I quoted... Uh, a Martin Luther King quote, which I'm going to share with you now because I think it is especially poignant. Um, Let us be dissatisfied until the day when nobody will shout white power, when nobody will shout black power, but everyone will talk about God's power and human power. So I wrote this article um, and it was published uh, in March 2020. I was told by my editor it was a, quote, well-written piece. Um, fast forward to June and uh, the murder of, of George Floyd and this very same editor emailed me to notify that, that this article had been taken down, um, it no longer existed online, and that I had, um, I, it was, the article was, quote, a denial of oppression, and that I had, quote, diminished the experience of people of colour, um, and that my, my quoting of Martin Luther King was an issue because I'd imposed my, um, my identity as a white person onto his identity as a black person. Um, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that means. Um, but yeah, it was taken down. And, you know, my initial reaction, much like those who have spoken previously, was shock. You know, not only had I been censored, but I'd, be, I'd been censored by, you know, the people that were supposed to be upholding freedom of speech. Like, am I really such a terrible person? Um, you know, I thought long and hard about whether I really was a racist. Um, it was a terrible, terrible time. But then I um, decided to um, get in touch with the Free Speech Union. Um, and um, whilst, yeah, you know, my livelihood wasn't on the line as perhaps um, Nick's and Gillian's were, but um, I was nonetheless um, supported. Um, they wrote to the Broad twice. Um, the Broad got back with, I think, a couple of lines which were useless. Um, my article was never republished. Um, I still check every now and then on the URL. Um, it's not that. Um, but, you know, what I kind of got from the experience was, um, well, I got an article published in the Critic magazine, which, you know, ironically had infinitely more views than my piece for The Broad ever had. Um, and then also what has been really refreshing is this year, um, 
an organization called Free Speech Champions um, has come into being. Um, and we're a group of um, young people, mostly students, um, who are really looking to promote the, the virtues of, um, of the free, free exchange of ideas and the, the value of debate and discussion and disagreement. Um, and so, yeah, we have recently actually launched this week, um, created the new taboo zine, which you can pick up in the main assembly hall. Sorry, a little plug there, Toby. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think, you know, we've got, we've got a discourse um, amongst uh, higher education institutions which needs to be um, rediscovered. It needs to be reclaimed um, because, yeah, at the current, you know, I'll, I'll elaborate much further later later on but um yeah i think we got to we got to rediscover our ability to to disagree thanks Sam. it's it's good that one theme emerging is is quite an optimistic one which is that even though the experience of um being cancelled uh, being targeted by an outraged mob can be extremely traumatic when it's happening to you and it happened to me at the beginning of 2018, and my reaction, like Nick's, was initially to kind of knuckle down, um, uh, hide in my bunker. Um, uh, and you sort of have this sort of atavistic fear that uh, people are out to get you, and that people passing you on the street might have read about it and, and might have this horrible, jaundiced, toxic view of you. And you feel kind of, you feel this kind of primordial terror that people are going to come for you, a mob is going to come for you, jump out of Twitter and appear in front of you. Um, uh, but ultimately, um, uh, if you do fight back um, and you get the right kind of support, it can be quite a positive experience in the end. And you do feel kind of renewed and invigorated and good things out of, out of my cancellation experience came the Free Speech Union, out of yours came uh, uh, the Free Speech Champion. So Harry, um, Tell us about what happened to you and how, in some ways, it has been a positive experience for you too. It's been an incredibly positive experience. Um, you know, I was looking forward to uh, a few years of sort of semi-retirement. I'm, I'm a naturally very, very lazy person who gets his thrills out of watching Netflix and walking the dogs. Um, but I, I, was, I was doing my shopping. I was doing my wife's shopping, by the way. Um, and uh, I got a call that said that the, the Humberside Police had turned up at my place of work because they were very concerned about the trans people at Immingham Dock. Uh, I, I told the police officer when I eventually spoke to him that there weren't really that many trans people at Immingham Dock. We'd only really just discovered gay people, and uh, <laughs> um, it, it, just really, it really wasn't really a thing. But nevertheless, nevertheless, uh, PC Gold from Humberside Police um, warned me that... Um, that I was a danger to trans people by virtue of a single complaint that came from somewhere uh, from the northwest. Um, I said, okay, then, what, what is it that I've done? What is it that I've done? And they said, well, you retweeted a limerick. I'm like, well, I don't think I did retweet a limerick, but you, if you say so. Uh, and he said, but also, there were 30 other tweets. Um, and that without, without um, if we hadn't spoken to you, the danger is that these would, these would escalate into severe criminality. And I, I said, well, have I committed a crime? He said, no. I said, well, why, why are you here sort of talking to me? And he said, well, I need to check your thinking. Which, <laughs> exactly. I said, okay, that's quite interesting. So you're a police officer. I've not committed a crime, and you need to check my thinking. He says, yes, that's right. I said, have you heard of George Orwell, 1984? 
Uh, and he said no, <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> uh, and I pointed out that it, it was a dystopian novel and not a police operating how-to manual. <laughs> Anyway, um, this, this quickly escalated, um, and the assistant chief constable got involved, and uh, he went public and said that it was necessary. It was necessary for the police to intervene in my in my thought life and my speech life, uh, because because had they not done so, um, that my actions as a raging transphobe um, would would escalate into deep deep criminality. We asked them what criminality they had in mind. Uh, we asked them this at the, at the High Court, actually, uh, and they said the murder of Stephen Lawrence. Um, so so by, t by, tweeting, by tweeting a, not a limerick, uh, and one or two other bits of doggerel, um, they had in mind that intervention was necessary because somebody, somebody would end up dead at a bus stop. But, by the way, it doesn't end there, because they also argued that in tweeting, and let me say some of the things that I tweeted. One of the things I, I tweeted was... Um, Sheffield lasses know the difference between men and women. Now you can see how that might escalate into a murder, can't you? Um, another thing I tweeted um, was, um, I was, um, I was assigned mammal at birth, but I identify as fish. Don't misspecies me, motherfuckers. Um, and this, 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 was, this was also deemed to be that transphobic that it would escalate to a murder. Um, and, um, but not, not just murder, because murder is only stage four of a five-stage process, which I was embarked upon. Stage five, incidentally, is genocide. So by tweeting, this is what the police, this is what Humberside Police and the College of Policing argued at the High Court and then argued again at the Court of Appeal, because, of course, I whooped Humberside's ass. Um, they were likened to the Stasi, the Chequet, and the Gestapo by the good Mr. Justice Knowles. Uh, but in a strange twist of irony, the College of Policing got off the hook because it turns out that whilst the guidance is entirely legal, the hate crime guidance is legal, following the guidance is not legal. So we, we figured that was fundamentally insane. Um, and so we took the College of Policing to the Court of Appeal in March. And as we sit here and speak right now, we are waiting uh, for a judgment to drop. And if we win... Um, we will, we will, in one fell swoop, dismantle the entire hate crime lunacy, uh, which I'm very, very pleased about. And just to be clear, Harry, when the police concluded that no crime had been committed, um, they nonetheless recorded this episode as a non-crime hate incident, and that... Um, has now gone effectively on your criminal record. And if you were to apply for a job working with children and your prospective employer did an enhanced DBS check whereby they, they got to see your criminal record, that would appear on it and it could mean that you didn't get that job. And you might think this is a relatively rare occurrence. Perhaps it only happens uh, with particularly zealous police officers in Humberside following the hate crime official guidance as laid down by the College of Policing with particular fastidiousness. But actually, the... Telegraph did an FOI of all the police services in England and Wales um, uh, last year and discovered that they had recorded 120,000 140, non-crime non hate incidents between 2014 and 2019, which I think Harry calculated was something like seven a day. Yeah. And that's uh, 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 things like people misgendering one another on Twitter. Uh, but it can really, it, ha it has a really chilling effect on free speech. So Harry has done tremendous work in trying to um, get the recording of non-crimes on people's criminal records, which really does sound like something out of 1984, um, declared unlawful.
by the first the High Court and now the Court of Appeal. And what, what, we're awaiting what, that verdict, yeah. aren't we? Yeah, what, what, what's, so, what's so utterly terrifying about it is this. The, the, the College of Policing Hate Crime Guidance says that in order for a non-crime hate incident to be recorded against an individual, there doesn't need to be an incident and there doesn't need to be any evidence of hate. How about that? How, how, how about that? All there needs to be is perception. Somebody, doesn't have to be the victim, can just be anybody. If they perceive it to be hate, and by the way, the College of Policing define hate as antagonism, ill will, unfriendliness and dislike god bless them so if, if you are if you are hateful in that way and somebody perceives it as such then you you carry this enhanced dbs check around with you for the next six years no appeal possible and they often don't tell you if they've recorded these against you um you have to submit a um what a, a, an access request in order to find out lisa um we're often told that bad as things are in England and Wales, with the police telling people who retweet doggerel to check their thinking, um, it's even worse north of the border. And um, you had quite a tough experience um, at, in your last year as a law student at Aberdeen. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so I was in my final year and I wanted to do intellectual property, but there was no space left on that. So I was left with um, gender, feminism and the law. So I had to do this. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me now? Um, so I had to do... Oh, sorry. <laughs> gender feminism in the law, because that's all that was left. And in the first class, we were speaking about men and women and, like, m men fighting against women in mixed martial arts and things. And I was like, well, that's not fair. Because, like, obviously, if you take Fallon Fox, he... Um, well, he is a he, well, in my head. And um, so he was fighting with this woman and he fractured her skill in 38 seconds. And I pointed out, you know, he was a man up until he was 32. Um, he had all the the benefits of testosterone in his body, male puberty and things like that. So this was like, this was a man beating a woman up in the ring, he fractured her skull. So the lecturer said to me, so what would you define as a woman? And I didn't know like about any of this. I was busy mumming and looking after dogs and sheep and like being a housewife and all that sort of stuff. So I was like, um, a woman who's like a person with a vagina and the ability to reproduce. And everybody started going crazy. So I was like, right, okay, it's a team's call. So I'll just type it down so they can see what I'm saying. So I typed down a woman as a person with a vagina and the ability to reproduce. And they're like, oh, you're transphobic, you're transphobic. And I'm like, hmm. No, I'm not. Um, and then th this kind of went on for a couple of weeks. So the next sort of big deal was, I think, Sarah Everard had just been murdered. And they were saying, oh, all men are rapists. And I was like, well, no, they're not. And um, they were like, yes, they are. Yes, they are. All men are rapists. And I was like, well, I've got a partner. I've got children. I know lots of men that are not rapists. So all men are not rapists. And they seemed to get really, like, happy and excited. And they were like, oh, yeah, let's keep getting, getting going. So they started, like, really going at me. And they started attacking my children and things like that. They were like, oh, yeah, your children, I hope they get jumped in the street because they've got penises. Um, I... I they're going to grow up to re be rapists and things like this. And I was like, right, okay. So at this point, I, I was quite annoyed. And I was like, you know what? You're nothing but men hating feminists. And it wasn't an insult because they told me they hated men and they told me they were feminists. <laughs> so I, I, I took the two statements and put them together. So um, I, I, I didn't think anything more of it. I didn't realise I'd done anything wrong. So um, it was mind my own business. I got an email from the university and it was like... Um, in April saying you've been accused of making inappropriate comments in a class that could be um, discriminatory or whatever. So um, I, at first I was like, oh, screw this, this is just nonsense. So I ignored it. 
until the next day and I was like getting really worked up. So I, I wrote quite a scathing email, not scathing, but quite a, an upset email back to the woman. I was like, you're accusing me of saying inappropriate things. X, Y and Z has happened in this class. Why are you not doing anything about this? Um, so I got to pick a date for my interview. At the interview, I was like, so what have I been accused of? And she's like, oh, we're going to tease it out. And I'm like, well, could you just tell me what I've been accused of? So um, she didn't until we sort of started getting questioned. And she was like, did you say that only women have vaginas? And I was like, well, yeah. And she's like, can you see why that's offensive? And I was like... <laughs> No, I can't see why that's offensive. Women don't have penises, they've got vaginas. Why is it offensive? And she's like, oh, you know, I, I'm asking the questions sort of thing. You're not here to question me, blah, blah. Um, did you say that your class members were men-hating feminists? And I was like, yes, they said they were feminists. They said they hated men. I put the two things together. I didn't mean it, um, I didn't mean it nice, but it's not an insult if they're describing themselves as that. And then she was like, did you say all men are not rapists? I said, yeah. And um, what else did she ask me? Oh, did you say that men are stronger than women? And I was like, well, of course I did. I used to be a mechanic. So I know firsthand that, like, you know, I was in the garage. I couldn't lift certain things. I'd go, can you pick this up for me? I can't. Not strong enough sort of thing. I didn't say that. But I was just like, oh, could you do this for me? Because I can't. Um, so I know that men are stronger than women. And um, like every time she asked me a question, she's like, can you see why this is offensive? And I'm like, no, I can't. And obviously, I left this meeting... No further forward, I still didn't know what I'd done wrong because obviously women do have vaginas, men do have penises, men are stronger, men have testosterone, men shouldn't be beating women up in MMA. Um, so at this, I still didn't know what I'd done wrong and a friend of mine had suggested going to the Free Speech Union, so I did and Fraser helped me, he was fantastic through the whole thing. Um, and I had another interview, but they'd sort of twisted the narrative by this point. So instead of it being a free speech issue, they were like, oh, you're misconduct. And I was like, well, all of these interviews were recorded, uh, all of these classes, sorry, were recorded. So there was no misconduct, um, which is why they didn't uphold the complaint. But the complaint was never about misconduct. It was always about inappropriate comments. Now I'm at a point in my life where I did have a job secured leaving and now nobody wants to employ me because they don't want to be seen to publicly support the transphobe. Um, which I don't deny being, I'm not a transphobe, but if somebody says to me, are you transphobic? I'm not defending that. If saying women have vaginas is transphobic, then I am transphobic. And I think one important lesson from Lisa's case is, unlike in Nick and Gillian's case, even Sam's case, where there was no due process, they were found guilty and punished without being given an opportunity to put their side of the story, at least initially. In Lisa's case, there was a quasi-judicial process, uh, not surprisingly because it was a law school, um, uh, which, which you were put through. But one thing we often say in the Free Speech Union, even when people are exonerated at the end of one of these processes, often with our help, it's the process which is the punishment. Merely being put through a process like that and essentially being put on trial and then, you know, and, and it hangs over your head even after you're exonerated. Well, it's not just that. I was doing my final exams at this point, so I had this two-and-a-half-month ludicrous investigation over my head while trying to do essays, presentations, and my dissertation. And it, it was stressful. Like, it was really, really stressful. Uh, I couldn't focus all the energy into what I wanted to because I was trying to focus on fighting this, and as much as I had the Free Speech Union there, and they were fantastic... It's still a weight on your shoulders. You don't know what's going to happen. So I think, yeah, the, the process was actually much worse than the, than the result getting let off. I still had to go through that two and a half month of hell. Okay. Well, you've heard from our panellists. Um, uh, now we'd like to hear from you. Um, uh, so we're going to take questions now. As far as I'm concerned, what we have in this country is a hate crime industry. And at the heart of that 
is the College of Policing, which is effectively Stasi Uni UK, led by a man called Lord Herbert, who's also the Prime Minister's uh, envoy on LGBT rights, the chair of the Hate Crime Network in the British Society of Criminology, uh, is also an LGBT activist, Dr. Joe Smith, at the University of Brighton. Now, what we effectively have with the experiences of all these people here is partly people that were terrified, as I think Nick was saying, of uh, the attacks that were being made, but also um, we have... <laughs> uh, sorry, I lost my point there. Big pardon. Anyway, um, the key point is that we've really got to fight against this hate crime industry and start, actual fact, targeting these people that are pushing this agenda and this stupid definition of what constitutes causing offence. Anybody that is perceived to cause offence can end up with NCHI, non-crime hate incident, against their name. And that's what we have to fight and start fighting these people and targeting them. Thank you. So we've, we've heard about individual bravery, and no doubt all the panellists are brave. And uh, in an earlier meeting, we heard about individual boycotts. Um, and I think I slightly disagree with Nick about people being cowards these days. I think people are in very vulnerable positions very often. So my question is, you know, there's a real problem if you're going to be sat down by the HR department and have to go through, you know, training on critical race theory or training on racial sensitivity when you know that the whole bloody thing's ridiculous. How, do you, how would panellists suggest that we kind of oppose that collectively, and is there a role for the free speech union in that? There's no role for, it seems, conventional unions very often, because my union, the teaching union, are all for decolonisation, and they're all for critical race theory. So, you know, where do we look as individuals, or a collection of individuals, to kind of push back before we have to, have to be subject to more and more of this stuff? Hiya, um, I'm at University at Aberystwyth and I held an event in my second year. Um, I invited Ella Whelan to come and speak. Um, I was a bit under the radar and managed to invite her and brought up um, um, you know, a crowd of people to talk about um, the identity crisis. Um, and it was quite successful, but it had quite a lot of... Um, but a lot of people judged, not me personally because they didn't know me, but they, they, the person was sat in the event censoring it, um, kind of reporting, she, she talked, came up to me and said, um, I'm, I'm going to report if anything is offensive, which I found baffling. But on the other side, and a more optimistic view, a lot, I've come across a lot of lecturers and a lot of students who are completely opposed to this. Uh, the lecturer that was also speaking with Ella came up to me and said, this is really dangerous. I can't believe she came to censor this, this event. Um, my question, and I, I want to ask for some advice, um, well, what the panel would suggest. <coughs> I've come across a lot of individuals in the universities, professors and students who want to do something about it, who will voice opinion very kind of quietly that they are against it. What would you advise? How, how would you kind of suggest a collective effort to, to, um, to, to contradict what the university is silencing? And it's effectively the students' union in combination with the university. And that is what I find quite um, to be, I, that's what I find to be the problem. The students' union cannot um, represent the students and the and the um, professors who don't want to. Uh, sorry, <laughs> losing my words. Who don't who want to 
have free speech. Yep. So how, what would your advice be for universities okay. and for students? Thank you. We'll take one more and then we'll go back to our panel. So we've heard that these folks have all uh, been very brave and done a wonderful job of fighting back. But it's also been very clear that for everybody involved, the process is the punishment, as you said. And so one of the things that I'm wondering about is what can we do to make the inappropriate application of that process have some cost to the people who apply it? Mm. One of the reasons that people don't go to litigation on a frivolous basis is because you face very significant costs when you do so. Um, is there perhaps some way of bringing some of that kind of risk to bear on university administrators who insist on applying these processes in such a cavalier way. I don't mean personal ruin, that's in no one's best interest, but there should be a downside to careless following of process. Yeah. 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 Okay, well, um, the question um, by the student from Aberystwyth about um, what students can do um, on campus to push back against these attempts to control what they say, um, keep them within very narrow boundaries. What can they do, Sam? Um, could you recommend an organisation apart from the Free Speech Union that, that could help them? Yeah, funnily enough, I can. So um, <clears throat> I recommend you do not hesitate and check out Free Speech Champions. Um, come and find one of us wearing a T-shirt. Uh, we've also got a stool in the Abbey Room. Um, and then, yeah, on our website, you know, we've got all sorts of information about how you can maybe start a free speech society at your university, um, which, you know, takes a fair bit of bravery to do, but many of us have done it. I haven't done it, but many of my colleagues at Free Speech Champions have. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot you can do, um, and there's so much information there um, which will help you work that out. One of the... Um, there was a policy exchange report... Um, uh, about um, academic free speech recently, and it did some polling. And one of the encouraging results was that um, they asked uh, people initially what their thoughts were when it came to um, choosing between safety and free speech. And initially, they prioritised emotional safety students for the most part. But then they read a short statement to them in defence of free speech, setting out the kind of elementary arguments in favour of free speech. And after they'd heard that, they then were much more inclined to prioritise free speech over emotional safety. And that, to me, suggested that if you can actually engage with students, if you can set out the case, get an opportunity to set out the case for free speech on campuses, you're going you're gonna to actually win a lot of them around. They, they often just haven't heard the case for free speech. They don't know what the arguments are in favour of it. So if you can get out there, like Sam and his colleagues and the free speech champions are, and make that argument and help others make that argument, I think that can... That will make a difference. Um, uh, this, the question from the um, member of the teaching union, um, Harry, what can we do to push back? Well, of course, you can join the Free Speech Union and you have the QR code on your seat. Um, but you're right. Unions, I think unions in the 19th century, in many cases, part of their core purpose was to defend the free speech of their members so they couldn't be sacked by their bosses for calling for better working conditions. Um, and lots of unions seem to have lost sight of that original purpose, and even lobby groups set up to defend free speech, like the American Civil Liberties Union, seem to have lost sight of their original purpose, which was to defend free speech. So what can be done, Harry? How can we organise? What sort of institutional and organisational support can we give to people to defend their, their speech rights? 
I think absolutely you're right, Toby. People need to join the Free Speech Union. I think if they... Um, so that would cover, you know, students, that would cover most places of work, I would think. Uh, I was sitting in a, in a restaurant of, uh, about a year or so ago with um, the activist Posey Parker, and uh, it, the, the restaurant was absolutely packed out solid. And I said, Posey, how many people in here do you reckon have had a, a knock on the door uh, from the police about something that they've, they've said or thought? And we both agreed it was probably just me and her, in actual fact. And I said, well, how many people here do you think are scared stiff of saying something because of their HR departments? And we figured it was probably 80, 90%. So this is where I think that the Free Speech Union is doing an absolutely fantastic job. And if we can scare the shit out of HR managers and directors uh, by showing them that um, they are, in fact, breaking the law so often by using coercive measures, by misrepresenting the Equality Act, for instance, and as, as the gentleman said, turn it into some form of personal cost to them. This is one of the regrets that I had. When I took on Humberside Police initially, um, I made a sort of virtue point of not going after them for any money. Um, I wish I wished I had now. Not because I wanted the money, I mean I do, but, um, <laughs> but, to, to, but, but for it to have cost them uh, something. What, what, my, my chief area of interest is in the police. Uh, I get a lot of messages from police officers who have been badly let down by the police federation um, because the police federation are entirely bought into the entire wokery of the various constabularies. So now we have, in effect, uh, a police force of regular bobbies who have no representation whatsoever because their unions have, their, their union, the, the federation, has thrown them to the dogs. So that's one of the areas that I'm, I would like to focus on next is to give police officers um, something of a alternative voice. Just going back to you, um, Bryn, I thought you might be able to help with this one. The gentleman asked, uh, what can we do to raise the cost of people making vexatious, politically motivated complaints? One thing we've been debating in the Free Speech Union is, should we encourage people uh, to make vexatious complaints about the sorts of people that make vexatious complaints, uh, both to deter them, but also if we overwhelm the um, authorities with having to deal with these complaints, and they're not just dealing with complaints against um, uh, 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 people dissenting from the campus orthodoxy, then they might be less like they might sort of uh, become a bit more discriminating generally about how many to investigate. But we're slightly wary of adopting the other side's tactics. Um, but Bryn, we thought about an amendment, didn't we, to the higher education bill? Um, which could increase the cost of vexatious complaints. It's not entirely clear that the higher education bill will actually do that. It's certainly true that most organisations won't relish uh, the prospect of paying legal expenses, and, and that's often one thing that's going to drive them uh, to some sort of settlement. You're not always going to have to fight to the bitter end. Uh, at some point, the organisation, be it a university or an employer, might decide uh, that they really don't want to pay lawyers that much money, and uh, I don't really blame them. Um, in terms of the, the higher education bill, uh, which is directly relevant to the gentleman's question, uh, a key part of the, the government's thinking, and I, and I think it's very wise, is that one way to make compliance with uh, free speech duties um, a, a, a key goal of universities is to attach to it the same liability risk um, that, for instance, the, the Equality Act also imposes on universities, uh, as well as other forms of law. What we see time and again, and I'm sure many people in this room have seen, uh, is the absence of free speech from decision-making. 
uh, it, it's simply not factored in until it's too late when they get a nasty letter from Toby and then they think, oh, we should have really thought about that. Um, so the question is, how do we ensure that, uh, you know, in these various committees, uh, in uh, EDI groups, uh, how do we ensure that it's, it's simply part of the decision-making matrix? And I, I think the answer is uh, to ensure that there is risk of liability. Now, the, uh, the higher education bill will, will do that by uh, creating uh, uh, the uh, potential for students, academics, and others to bring civil claims in the courts, which means a, a, a claim in tort, uh, which can include uh, pretty considerable damages. Um, and that, I think, is the way to get uh, attention. I wasn't quite sure to talk about the amendment that we were, um, we were uh, thinking about. I seem to think that we had some, something that we wanted to encourage. We wanted to change the bill slightly to make, it, to make there a greater cost attached to bringing vexatious complaints, deluging complaint systems with, with uh, politically motivated complaints. Maybe I've imagined that. No, I mean, I, I certainly think it's... Um, I certainly think it's important, and um, it's certainly one thing that, that, that we, we thought about was um, how can there be a, an encouragement of greater civility uh, in academic debate? Um, so to, to draw a distinction between academic freedom and free speech, uh, and speech which is purely designed to uh, intimidate and harass, uh, as we've been seeing um, at the University of Sussex. And I, I think that's something that, that, that's very much worth doing as a matter of soft enforcement. It's perhaps not something we'd want to, to see courts getting involved in, but as a, as a, as a cultural change, um, I certainly think that would be very desirable. Okay. Sure, I was, when you say um, <clears throat> we don't want to use the same tactics mm. as these kind of vexatious complainers, I think that's true, but it's not necessary to go after individuals to use the same kind of tactic. What I think needs to happen more often, and we saw some of it this week, is the actual companies, organizations, universities, they're the ones who need to be shamed for caving to this stuff. As I, um, I mean, I always think, scorpion's gonna scorpion. You're never gonna stop vexatious complainers from like, for instance, in my case, the, the company, caved to what was essentially a bunch of anonymous, abusive, I don't think most of them were even children. Some of them might have been teenagers, some of them might have been overgrown teenagers, some of them were furries. I, and I, if, if you don't know what a furry is, be careful how you Google. Um, and just plain pervs. I mean, the, there were some accounts after me that were just, uh, and the fact is that the publishing companies are caving to those people. What? What kind of company are you? They, they need to be shamed for caving. The individuals are going to do it anyway. It's, but we saw it this week when Kathleen Stock was, she was the subject of a horrible campaign to get her fired um, at, at the University of Sussex. But people fought back. People said, University of Sussex, shame on you. Don't do it. And it worked. Now, they didn't have to go after the individuals. What happened was you have to pressure the university, pressure, pressure the, the corporations. Corporations don't have souls. They don't care about discrimination, real or imagined. They go, they want, they go after the money. They, it's, it's as simple as that. And if they're shamed into not caving to these 
frantic kind of. I mean, my the, the letter that went out apologising for my dreadful behaviour after um, I was fired went to people like they were. The managing editor was writing, "Dear Zenon with an X, I'm so sorry about you know." I, Zenon with an X. I bet he wasn't christened. You know, and they were just they're just anonymous, overgrown kids. And why? It's the companies that need to feel shame, not the anonymous, overgrown kids. Yes, I mean one of you know? our one of our very much one of our tactics in the Free Speech Union is if we can increase the cost uh, on institutions uh, on caving into. Mm these demands, then that's the way to win. Often they're not caving into them because they're politically motivated, because they agree with the ideological position of the complainants. They just want a quiet life. They just want to take the path of least resistance. So if you can make it noisier to give in than to fight, then that's the way to win. Let's take some more questions. I, I work in higher education, and I wanted to say that one of the most bewildering factors has been the speed and ease with which institutions have crumbled. And it's, I want, just want to put a bit of context as to why. Um, because in universities, you've got to bear in mind, there's been a big power shift in recent years. Ever since the fees were brought in, students are much more consumers. And that language is very much part of the university uh, culture. So uh, you'll hear students refer to themselves not just as students, but as fee-paying students. And that means that there is a sort of desperate wish um, not to antagonise the student body, particularly the student union. And that's uh, the other institution, I think, which needs to be mentioned in, in the discussion. Coupled with that is the desperate competition for students ever since the cap on numbers was removed a few years ago. So that, in a sense, if higher education is a market, it's one in which the power shift has moved uh, very much in the, in, in the uh, interests, as it were, of the consumers. And that's why I, I couldn't agree more. You need to make um, authorities more scared of, of the uh, consequences of giving in than of the activists who, who make them. But bear in mind, that's the sort of context in which you're working. And there's, in other words, it's not just wanting a quiet life. There are economic reasons why universities um, will take that line of resistance. Can I ask you a question, yeah, which sure. is, so do you think that um, the creation of safe spaces, the prohibition on microaggressions, the introduction of trigger warnings, the decolonization of reading lists for fear that they might feel, make some people feel unsafe and excluded, all of that stuff, mm -hmm. is that driven then by the students as powerful consumers? Or is it driven by a kind of misguided sense of needing to protect the students because they are now the consumers, the people paying our wages? It's Two things, and possibly three. One is, in certain universities, I think that is the case in students. I work at Anglia Ruskin University, which is the sort of the Cambridge equivalent of Oxford Brooks, and we don't tend to get this. Uh, our students very often are from the sort of working um, background, first people in their families to go to university. They have degrees to get, they, get, they tend to get their heads down. They're, they don't really sort of, this is more of a, a luxury thing. We have another university in Cambridge, or so I'm told. Um, <laughs> and that is, there you, you will, yeah. uh, you know, it's well known, there's much more of it. So partly from students, partly from, I think partly because it is a fashion. Okay. And I think that's a factor. Yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, listening to all those stories, and obviously it, it's very clear that cancel culture does exist, and there is this bewildering attempt to sort of deny it <laughs> um, amongst people who work in higher education. My, there's a bit of a tension here, though. I was just sort of reflecting on, you know, the, the kind of cowardice and 
um, why don't people speak up and the sort of self-censorship that was alluded to here and I kind of struggle with it a bit because the problem is that while there are all these sort of terrible incursions on free speech in higher education I think there's also a kind of over zone to which people kind of over assume that they can't say things you know, I mean, the number of times you people say, well, you, you can't say anything. It's like, well, yeah, you can, actually. You know, I mean, I've worked in a number of jobs. And actually, it's still quite an open place. And it's quite important to have these discussions and to keep having them. And I just wondered if there was a, a way of trying to sort of also bring that, that, that kind of normalisation back of, um, you know, how it's important to have conversations and, and how they still do happen. Um, even despite all these kind of demonstrable problems going on. Could I ask another question as well? Quickly. Uh, compelled speech. I wondered if you'd had any cases about that, because that's one of the things that, that worries me, that you can kind of sort of take responsibility for being called on something you have said, mm -hmm. but there seems to be a growing trend to kind of have to sign up to something else, otherwise silence is complicity, yep. and I wondered mm -hmm. if you'd had cases about that. Yeah, OK, good. Um, I'd like to focus on the, the media particularly um, certain uh, sections of the uh, public service broadcasting, um, who are very censorious of any attempts to criticize social justice ideology. And my question is, um, is there a possibility for groups like the Free Speech Union to organize a campaign which would put pressure on these media institutions who are critical of, the, of that kind of activity, particularly, as I say, the public service broadcasting unions? Yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, I, um, I am, I'm a student at Cambridge, and I have been here for the last four years, and I've been really ashamed of everything that has been coming through the institution, and I'm very, very pleased that Stephen Toop is leaving, uh, finally. Um, but just in response to what's been said previously, I definitely think that it's, it's a case of the students pushing and just having no pushback whatsoever. I think Stephen Toop is one of the sort of least backbone people I've found, and it's not at all that he's ideologically in favour of it, he just doesn't want to trouble his students at all. Um, and so I really hope that we introduce someone new with a bit of backbone to replace that. But I think definitely it's a kind of, it's a race to the bottom where students are pushing, but they're getting no push back. So it's just who can create these new policies quicker. Yeah, thank you. Um, we had a couple of questions there about higher education. One thing I'm curious about is when your antagonists claimed that things you had said were harmful and they found them upsetting, they were triggered by them, were they being sincere? Did they really feel injured by what you'd said or were they just pretending to in order to promote a particular political agenda? They were not offended. I actually think um, it was a deliberate ploy. I was very quiet throughout uni. I didn't take part in the drinking stuff. I didn't really socialise with people. These were all younger people. And when it came to, obviously, debates, I was always quite vocal. And I think because it was all online, they were able to say things that they wouldn't have normally said. But I think they were annoyed that I'd said these things and stood up by the truth. So they were like, right, we're, we're going to put this bitch down. And I think that's what they tried to do. And it was more that they just didn't like me then they didn't like what I was saying. It was like they, they were trying to find offence in everything that I was saying. They were trying to find a way to take offence to everything that I said. So they were absolutely not offended because women having vaginas is not transphobic. Uh, men being stronger than women is not transphobic. 
Um, so no, they were not offended. There was nothing offensive that I said. And even if I did know about all the J.K. Rowling stuff and everything else that goes on, I would still say what I said now. And not because it's offensive, because it's true. And how they took offence to that is beyond me. They were absolutely not offended. One of, one of the... Um... One of the things that often strikes me about um, outrage mobs who complain about you having given offence or having said something hateful is that they're completely uninhibited, Gillian, about being unbelievably nasty and vituperative and, in some cases, far more mis misogynistic uh, than they're accusing you of being. I mean, it's as though um, once you've been othered as someone who has breached one of their sacred values, even if that sacred value is not giving offence, then all bets are off, you're fair game, and you have this kind of unleashing, this torrent of unpleasant abuse. Yes, and, and it's, I mean, it's some of the stuff I got with, I mean, it was nothing I have said even remotely came close to some of the stuff that was being fired at me. I mean, it was just... You know, I wouldn't even quote it. It was absolutely foul. It was death threats. Death, you know, hoping I died in the most horrible, vile ways possible, you know, preferably being raped first. Um, and that's... But I think this, this is it. There's a certain number of people... I think it doesn't matter what cause it was. There's a certain element who are going to do that and they will latch onto anything. It's like the people who just didn't like you, Lisa, so they latched onto that. So there is a certain kind of person who will latch onto it, and that's why I think they are almost irrelevant in this, these rather vile human beings who are just basically sitting in bed. They, they're beside the point. Um, that's why companies who cave to vile little nasties in their mother's basements, that's the people who should be truly ashamed. You know, the scorpions are just being scorpions. It's the people who are obeying the demands and dictates of the scorpions who need to be shamed. If you read the College of Policing guidelines, it says this. Um, a decrease in hate crime and hate is not an appropriate target because it will demotivate officers. That's, that's what the College of Policing guidance says. So what they then do is they then actively recruit people who are offended, actively recruit. In my case, this anonymous person was granted uh, an anonymity order um, on account of them being vulnerable. They weren't vulnerable at all. They have a history that dates back to 2014 of being abusive, abusive trolls to the extent that uh, Julie Burchill um, actually wrote about them in a spectator column. Um, because that is, but we weren't allowed to know this. Uh, I found out about my particular uh, accuser because um, there was a whistleblower. Um, but the police redacted their details and hid them, hid them from me, hid them from the court, um, and duped the court into granting them a court order. Um, so the, what I'm saying is that the College of Policing are actively, and the police forces are actively encouraging people to make vexatious accusations because they have as one of their clear targets a increase in hate. Let's take some more questions. Hi, um, I'm just wondering what on earth we can do when last week on the news Boris Johnson himself couldn't decide who had cervixes. I'm, I'm listening to these stories and I'm thinking the things that people are being accused of and, and these settled ideas 
They're lies. They are, they are biologically untrue. And I'm thinking, it's like Alice through the looking glass. It's like the world has gone mad. And why isn't anybody saying, excuse me, you are defending something that offends my intelligence. It offends reality. It isn't real. And instead of everybody collapsing into a heap and wondering what these people are going to do to us, why aren't we turning around and saying, what are you on? Get out of my way. I absolutely agree with Nick. And it's not about people being cowardly. It's about people being afraid to be brave. And I think that's what we need to start doing again. Start Um, given that there seems to be resistance to the government doing anything, is there any chance with universities of using the market like uh, some kind of ranking of how woke universities are and trying to... Have you guys thought of publishing like a list of the most and least woke universities and trying to steer students away, given that they're so concerned about student numbers now? Do you think that might have an effect? Good, yep. Just wanted to say I'm glad I came to this session. Because in the morning I started off with a session on um, heresy, free speech, and so on and so on. And pretty much most my, the main question I had in the morning coming in was, you know, what to do has been answered in this session to a large extent. But what I'm glad about this session in particular is the reframing of the question. Um, so in the morning, there was talk about, you know, heretic tactics and so on and so on. You know, the, the heresy is on the other side. As, as the, the lady just said, um, you know, to, 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 to paraphrase Terry Egerton, walk, cancel culture, and the rest of it, postmodernity or postmodernism, critical theory, is, is, is in essence the modern day version of what the Middle Ages knew as um, the heresy of fideism. You know, and if we keep that in perspective, uh, then we will know how to fight back. Uh, and just to say the last thing, um, I hear a lot of talk on um, you know, how to fight critical race theory and so on. Those are derivations. The mother lord is critical theory. And, and I should know something about that. I wrote a PhD on it. <laughs> we had a question about whether we could do something about the role the BBC uh, has more or less assigned to itself as um, an enforcer of these orthodoxies mm. and um, uh, someone who, an organisation that doesn't often give heretics an opportunity uh, uh, to appear. Um, and... One thing you've done since um, your experience is you've begun broadcasting on talk radio, on GB News. Yeah. And what one way of um, trying to get the BBC to um, be a bit more impartial and not take sides on these issues is to challenge them, not internally, but with other competing broadcasting organisations. How successful do you think they've been i mean do you, do you feel that you are you have been given a voice and given an opportunity to articulate another heretical point of view or do you feel pretty marginalized being on things like gb news and talk radio i 
I speak to lots of people all the time who've seen me on GB News, or have listened to me on talk radio. Um, obviously, the numbers aren't the same as the BBC, um, but the BBC is a good example of what you can do as an individual when you say no. So what do you do? You cancel your licence fee. And that's what you need to do. What we keep talking about is what can someone else do for us? What, what can that, what can that organisation do to, to make us safer or to protect our freedom of speech? And the answer is hardly anything. The person who can do it is you. And when I use the word cowardice, I've thought about this one. I just wrote a book on cowardice, comes out in November. Um, and I use the word meaningfully. I thought about this. It is cowardice. It isn't being afraid. Nothing wrong in being afraid. That gets, that gets you going. That makes sure you look out for danger. Cowardice is when you're afraid and you know what you should do, but yet you still don't do it. That's cowardice. Freedom is not free. People have to pay for freedom, and they pay for it with their lives, with their blood, and they pay for it with being uncomfortable. And that's what you all need to do. You need to look at your lives. You need to look at the decisions you make. And you need to say to yourself, somebody talked about HR sending them on to um, a CRT course. Well, of course, I don't want you losing your job over that. I don't want martyrs falling on your sword over one incident. But what you can do you can phone in sick that day and not take it. What you can do is if you're an England football supporter and you go to the England games and you boo them taking the knee, well, you've booed. How about you don't go? But what we're looking for all the time is something that's not going to impact us and make us uncomfortable. So I'll go along with this and I'll complain and moan about it, but I'm not going to do something that will affect me a little bit negatively. That's where it needs to change, otherwise nothing else will change. There was a question about um, compelled speech, and this came up recently because um, matriculating students at St Andrews University um, had to undergo some unconscious bias training. They had to take a course. And not only did they have to complete the course before they could matriculate, but they had to then... Um, uh, answer this questionnaire and one of the questions was do you think that acknowledging your personal guilt has helped you overcome your unconscious bias um, which is sort of an odd question because if the bias is unconscious well how do you know but um, uh, but 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 essentially and, and you had to give a, an affirmative answer you had to say yes in order to matriculate it, it, it was it wasn't that you had to acknowledge your personal guilt exactly but you had to affirm that the premise of the unconscious bias training course was correct. Um, acknowledging your personal guilt would reduce your unconscious bias, lead to less discriminatory behavior. Now, as a matter of social science, empirically, the, the evidence that unconscious bias training course have, courses have this effect is extremely threadbare. So you're effectively being compelled to say something that if you knew anything about it, you probably thought wasn't true. And we do think that is a breach of the European Convention on Human Rights, and that's the interpretation anyway that the European Court of Human Rights uh, gave in a famous case about compelled speech with the, gay, the, the bakers having to bake the gay cake, whatever. Um, so we do think that they are behaving unlawfully, and we have had some successes where Somerville College, for instance, it also introduced 
introduced an unconscious bias training course and it required students to give affirmative answers to the questionnaire they had to complete after the course. And if they didn't, they got into trouble and we got them to at least not insist on that part of it. So I think you can do a little bit about um, compelled speech. Were you itching to come in here, Harry? No, you, no? okay. Let's have some more questions. Um, hi, I joined the diversity and inclusion strand at my workplace because I thought I may as well just to see what they were saying and to see what was going on there. And um, it was worse than I thought it was going to be. And somebody proposed the idea that we should really, really be pushing rainbow lanyards and pronouns in the bios. And I just, you know, my heart was thumping out of my chest because I thought, I, this is a joint so I could say no to these things. And it was really hard to do and it was in incredibly unpopular. But I feel like they are in an echo chamber where they understand, you know, pronouns and bios, I'm sure everybody here knows what that means. But when I go, I'm the only one of, in my social circle of my family who's even on Twitter. And so I don't know anybody personally who is, who's on Twitter and, and they all are with us. You know, they all think that this is ridiculous. They think it's a lot of grandstanding. They think it's a lot of um, a, just sort of pandering and catering to a very, very fringe movement. And what, what they're not aware of is they might be the majority and it might be a fringe movement, but it seems to be the fringe movement who turns up at diversity and inclusion committees and so on and so forth. So I feel like we do have most people on our side, but I don't have any evidence except my own personal you know, experience. So, but even most people think you can't change sex and that only women have vaginas and that white people aren't born guilty. Um, so how do we spread the word to the kind of masses who think, oh, that's a load of nonsense. Nobody has to worry about it. Nobody listens to them. Mm. Because I feel like those are the only people who are being listened to. And that most of us, not in this room, are unaware that it's those fringe people that seem to be driving everything. So how do, yeah. we, how do we spread that word and make people know, actually, you do need to turn up and, and say yeah. things? Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, just wanting to pick up on that question from this lady here. We know this institutional capture is, is taking place all over, whether it's with the police, higher education, um, and I'm thinking about ordinary secondary schools as well. Um, and for the next generation that are coming through, again, getting to university perhaps in a few years' time or out into the workplace, is there any mileage perhaps in organising some kind of rolling programme of, of free speech marches to try to give confidence to people that they don't have to keep their heads down all the time and keep self-censoring, you know, into perpetuity? Any mileage in that from the FSU? Okay. Thank you. Um, Yes, I know Lisa's case, as you can imagine. Um, the, th the thing I think is quite interesting about this is that there seems to be two dynamics that seem to be interconnected. One's ideological, so like we've just been talking about diversity type stuff. Uh, and the other one is kind of process, human resources stuff. And they both seem to be interconnected by the framework of vulnerability. So the the diversity framework seems to be around this idea of protected characteristics. And that seems to be a key dynamic. And then the human resources and what's happening at universities is they essentially look at students as being vulnerable. So you have in most universities now, I think, sort of pages that encourage students to tell tales, right? And some of them are almost called tell tales page. And what's interesting about that, that actually seems to breach the human resource 
process because one of the first things they say in human resources is if you've got an issue, you should go to the person first. And what universities are encouraging students to do is to make complaints against people before they actually go to that individual. And what I think you found in the case of Lisa is that they, what, what the university comes out and says is it's not just what Lisa said, it's the way she said it, right? And the idea being it's intimidating, it's vulnerable, and so on and so forth. So what you see now at universities is this kind of strange form of infantilization where instead of going to a university and coming out as an adult, you're actually being trained to be more childlike. Um, and I'm wondering if one of the things, whether it's the Free Speech Union uh, can do this or not, but one of the key things seems to me is that we need to re-establish the idea of the importance of knowledge because free speech isn't a good in and of itself, although it is, but in the context of a university, it's vital because you want to have a clash of ideas to actually get to something. Right? And that seems to be a problem for me that universities are becoming therapeutic institutions rather than realizing that actually the whole point of them is the development of knowledge. And that seems to be a key something that needs to be promoted. The free speech isn't just for the hell of it in a university context. It's absolutely vital if it's going to be the institution it's meant to be. Yeah. Sam, I wanted to come to you. In making the case for free speech to students, you must come up against this kind of prejudice, this, this assumption that if you're defending free speech, you're defending the right of people to say upsetting and offensive things. And why do we want to do that in our community and make things nastier? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, what I find is um, a lot of people are um, <clears throat> uh, pretty lazy in their, in their engagement in these discussions. And this comes back to the, the deterioration of discourse at universities. So take, for instance, the case of Neil Thin. Um, now, a friend of mine, um, it was uh, his personal tutee. Uh, this is a lecturer at uh, Edinburgh who got suspended, for those of you that don't know, and has later been cleared. But um, she came around for a cup of tea, this friend of mine, um, and just in passing said, oh, my, um, my personal tutor has been um, suspended. He's a little bit racist, a little bit homophobic. Um, and I was like, hang on a minute, where, where did you read that? Can you, you know, tell me a little bit more, justify it? And she's like, oh, I saw someone posted it on Facebook. Um, and, you know, it made me want to almost rip my head out that there's such a surface level um, engagement with these big issues. You know, I look at, um, there was an email that went around calling for the decolonization of the English literature curriculum at Edinburgh last summer. Um, you know, conversations that need to be had. But this email, which had an open letter attached, said in bold writing, you do not need to read the whole letter to sign it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's beyond belief that this is uh, our institutions of higher education, that we've lost this thirst for knowledge and have become nodding dogs to, um, to, to therapy and to comfort. One of the reasons the police, I think, Harry, one of the reasons the College of Policing have got their hooks into the police force insofar as they have is because many policemen want to protect the vulnerable. They want to feel that they're doing something really helpful and morally worthwhile. They are protecting the weakest and most vulnerable members of our society. How did the idea get embedded that certain points of view, certain expressions, certain opinions um, are actively harmful to already beleaguered minorities? Why, why were the police so easily persuaded of this? I don't know why they were so easily persuaded. I think it's a lack of, um, lack of, a lack of critical thinking. I think that they were desperate to relieve themselves 
of the guilt um, handed to them on a plate by McPherson uh, in terms of their response to the Stephen Lawrence inquiry book. But what the police did, because the Lawrence inquiry, it asked them to hold a mirror up to themselves and look at their own attitudes. And what they did is they deflected it. What they did is they took the lessons of the McPherson report and tried to apply those to everybody else. So it's you check your thinking is far easier than me check my thinking. That's what they did. The other problem is this. Following my high court victory, I, I, I had a, a sit-down meeting with the chief constable of Humberside. Uh, and I said to him, look, I, I kind of understand why an enthusiastic young officer came off the course and did what he did um, and got it entirely wrong. What I don't understand is why somebody up the chain of command didn't apply some common sense. Now then, this was chilling. The chief constable looked me in the eye and said, Harry, what you must understand is common sense is not an appropriate tool for, for a police officer. <laughs> because it leads to unpredictable outcomes. What we need is more guidance. In other words, we've ditched, we've ditched critical thinking um, for a reliance on spoon-fed guidance. And I think it's no coincidence that the College of Policing have now insisted that all police officers must be graduates. Why? Because they want people who have learnt how not to think. I think this has been an incredibly stimulating discussion. We've got a few minutes left. I just want to give uh, Gillian and Nick and Lisa a chance to just say their final piece for one minute each, and then I'll close the evening, afternoon. Gillian, do you want to go first? Okay, okay. <clears throat> I, that. I think what is most painful about um, the fact that it, what happened to me in my work environment is that this was the publishing industry. And it is endemic in the publishing industry. The publishing industry is supposed to be about freedom of expression. It's about creativity. It's about not being scared to say things. And... It's the publishing industry is now scared to say things. They're scared to defend their authors. They, you know, they, they cave as soon as, as soon as there's a mob, um, and it's not what publishing is supposed to be about. And they've kind of lost sight of it. And the saddest thing is that publishers know there's a problem here. They know there's a problem, um, and they know that their their writers. The writers, are, the writers aren't writing for themselves, they're not writing for an audience. The writers are writing for a future mob. They're worried about, they're thinking ahead all the time, what's somebody going to be offended by, what's going to get me in trouble, what's going to get me cancelled on Twitter. That's no way to have a thriving, creative publishing industry. Um, and, and publishers know there's a problem, they just don't, they've let it go too far. They let bloggers and social media commentators not just, they thought they were getting cheap book reviews and publicity when they started sending books out to book bloggers and, uh, and online reviewers. They didn't realise that they were going to start not just having an opinion about the book, they were going to start wanting to control who the authors were, what the authors were thinking, what the authors are writing about. And it's kind of what's happened. And publishers got themselves into this. They're now in a purity spiral. And... I don't know how they're going to get out of it, but it's this ain't publishing as we know it, and it's sad. We get out of it by winning your case and punishing them.
Um, Nick, a minute from you. I'm still very positive. I think we'll beat this, and I think we'll beat this quite easily. I think it's going to take a decade, but we'll only start beating it when people stand up and people start talking about it, like we are today, like we are in this building. So thank you, everybody, who, who came today. But you need to speak to your friends. We need to get to a stage where we point at people and we go, the king is in the all together, because we know they're talking complete rubbish, and they're idiots. We need to do it. We need to point them out and do your little bit. Because you know what? Our gang is bigger than their gang. There's 68 million of us. There's a couple of hundred thousand idiots. That's all there is. And if you all do your little bit, all that adds up to a, a, to a tsunami of change. And it can be done. And I'm extremely positive. My final thoughts are basically just don't back down. So what I do is I speak to people. I spoke to people in the airport last night. I spoke to people on the flight. I'm always flagging this up. And I think the more of us that don't back down, the more people will stand up. Um, I, I'm not as optimistic as Nick. I don't think it's going to be changed in the next 10 years. I think it's going to take longer than that because we've slowly been getting conditioned to do as we're told and to not speak up. But no, my, my um, final thoughts are... If somebody tries to put you down, get up and start shouting louder. I didn't have Twitter before this. I now have Twitter. I share my thoughts on there. I refuse to be silenced, and it's probably cost me like future jobs, but I don't care. <laughs> Thank you all very much for coming. Um, as I said at the beginning, if you want to join the Free Speech Union or donate to the Free Speech Union, the QR code is on the leaflet that you're sitting on or is beneath your chair. We have two stalls here, one immediately outside, one outside the entrance to the main auditorium. We'll be there for the rest of the afternoon. Come and talk to us. Um, uh, and just a big thank you to our panel. Um, uh, I think Lisa's right. One way in which you can start to fight back is by setting an example yourself. Um, by being courageous, by pushing back. It takes guts to get up when you've been knocked down and fight back. And so please, can, I, can we hear it for our panel of gutsy fighters? Thanks again for listening to the Battlefest podcast. You can support us by subscribing, sharing and leaving us a review. Check back next week for more recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021.